All right, how many are happy to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Can you say amen? Amen. Um, So today I get to start the series that I was supposed to start last Sunday. And uh, very excited about this. I want to say that this series is about going back to basics. If you go to the early church in the book of Acts, chapter 2 and following, what you find is that the early church had no structure. If you wanted to join a small group, there was no email that you could send to a director of small group ministry who would put you in one. Yeah. If you wanted to get baptized, there was no sign-up sheet and a date. If you wanted to go to Bible study, there were no pre-arranged and scheduled Bible studies on the Wednesday or Thursday or Friday. Yeah. It was all organic. But yet everybody was in a small group. Why? Because everybody valued it. And everybody was at Bible study. Why? Because everybody valued it. And everybody was at service. Why? Because there was a series of values that were born in the hearts of the sons and daughters of God who comprised the early church. And those values were there because they all got saved. Now, what I want to give you today is a very simple teaching. It's not like my usual sermons. The message today is entitled Salvation 101. Now, you remember I said a few weeks ago that going to church without knowing what kind of believer you're trying to become is like going to school every day without knowing what degree program you're enrolled in. And so I want to give us a vision and a curriculum for pursuing that vision. I want over the next several Sundays to set a course for where we are going in Christ. And it begins with salvation. And this message is going to revolve around two passages of Scripture. The first is Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost and what happened there. The second is Acts chapter 16 where Paul and Silas were put in prison in Philippi for preaching the gospel. In Acts chapter 2, I'll just give you the setting of both of those passages, and I'll tell you why. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus had just ascended into heaven. He told his disciples to go to Jerusalem and not leave Jerusalem until they received the promise of the Father. From the very outset of his ministry, John the Baptist introduced him to the world with these words, I baptize you with water, But one is coming after me who's greater than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So even before they met Jesus, the first thing they discovered about him was that what he came to bring us was a baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. So then Jesus comes on the scene, gathers his 12 disciples, walks with them for three years, teaches, heals, works miracles. He's betrayed, he's crucified. He rises up from the dead, is resurrected after three days or on the third day. Then he walks with them for 40 days, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And now he's standing on the Mount of Olives from which he's about to ascend into heaven and disappear from their view. And the last thing he says to them is, you remember what John said about me before you guys ever met me? That John baptized you with water, but I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Well, even after all this that we've been through in the last three years, I haven't done that for you yet. 
I've given you teaching, but I haven't given you that spirit baptism yet. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to go to Jerusalem, find a place to wait, and stay there until that promise is fulfilled. Notice he doesn't give them any inclination of what that's going to look like. He just says, go wait until the promise comes. Now the disciples go to the upper room. They find this, when it says the upper room, it's like on the second or third floor. They went to the upper room, not because it's closer to God, because they're higher up. They were hiding. They were scared to death. Their lives were in danger. Secondly, they didn't know what they were praying for or waiting for. But they were there for 10 days. Just waiting on God. Sitting in a room for 10 days waiting on God. Then we get to Acts chapter 2 verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all gathered together in one place and in one accord. There came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled the house. We're going to talk more about that in the next teachings. But they have this glorious spirit baptism experience in which all of them are filled up with God. And they make so much noise, they're trying to be quiet up there because they don't want to draw attention to themselves. But when they get filled with the Spirit of God, they make so much noise, they draw a crowd. And the crowd that gathers is a crowd that's trying to figure out what in the world is going on with those crazy people up there that we hear screaming in a bunch of different languages. The Scripture says that there was a multitude gathered in Jerusalem at that time out of every nation under heaven. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Smyrnites, dwellers of Mesopotamia, and so forth. Why? This was the Feast of Pentecost. And the Jews, since the time of Alexander, really in in the mid-4th century B.C., had been scattered throughout the entire Greco-Roman world. But three times a year, the devout Jews came back to Jerusalem for the three feasts of the Lord. The first was the Feast of Passover. It commemorated God bringing them out of Egypt crossing the Red Sea. The second was the Feast of Tabernacles. It commemorated them, uh, God keeping them in the wilderness as they lived in tents yeah. for those 40 years in the wilderness. And so for those seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles or booths or tents, they slept in tents. They pitched tents and they slept in tents outside their houses and in the streets. The third feast was the Feast of Pentecost and it commemorated God bringing them to the Mount Sinai and coming and sitting down on that mountain and giving them the law. So these three feasts of Israel, Passover, Tabernacles, and Pentecost, the Jewish calendar revolved around those three feasts. And whenever one of those feasts came along, you had Jews coming from all over the world to observe the feast in Jerusalem. Pentecost, what did it represent? It commemorated God coming down on a mountain in Exodus chapter 19 and 20 speaking to the entire congregation of Israel out of fire and smoke, scaring the living daylights out of all of them. That's really what it was. And what came out of Pentecost was the law. He gave them the law. It was a revelation on a mountain. But what happens on the day of Pentecost was an internal revelation instead of an external revelation. It was a new revelation of God, but it was inside, not outside. There was also a new law, but it was the law of the Spirit written on the heart, not the law written on stone tablets. But I'm getting ahead of myself. 
So now the disciples are speaking all of these languages. They get filled up with God and they start speaking foreign languages. Languages that they had never learned before. And this crowd that's gathered from every nation under heaven is hearing them speak their own language. So they gather and say, what is wrong? Are these people drunk? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stands up and preaches the first Pentecost sermon. And what he says is, we're not drunk like you think. It's only 9 a.m. Notice Peter starts out with a joke. Throws in a little humor. It's only 9 a.m. It's too early to be drunk. This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel, Joel 2.28. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Peter goes on from there. He starts with the description of what the Holy Spirit has just done. But he goes from there to preach Jesus. And if you read Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, the central point to his sermon is, you completely misunderstood who Jesus is. That's the point of his sermon. You missed it. Because this is the crowd that was screaming, crucify him a week ago. Or a month ago. Peter says, you completely missed who Jesus is. Really, it was 50 days ago. The word Pentecost means 50. It's 50 days after Passover. 50 days ago, everybody was in town for the Feast of Passover. And at the Feast of Passover, that's where everybody in this crowd was screaming, crucify him. And now they're back for the Feast of Pentecost a little less than two months later. And Peter says, you've misunderstood who Jesus is. And at the end of this sermon that Peter preaches, 3,000 people, Scripture says 3,000 souls are added to the church that day. 3,000 people believe. I have a proposition for you today. You can put it on the screen. Salvation. What is salvation? Salvation is a revelation that brings about a resurrection and a renovation. I'll say that again. Salvation is a revelation that brings about a resurrection and a renovation. Say it again. Salvation is a revelation that brings about a resurrection and a renovation. Salvation is first and foremost a revelation. But it's not a revelation that your life is broken and it can be healed. It's not a revelation that your life can be better. It's not even a revelation of the sin that you've committed. It's a revelation of who Jesus is. The core revelation that brings about salvation is that you misunderstood who Jesus is, but now you know who he is. Salvation starts with an awakening to the revelation of who Jesus is and what he actually did. And that's all Peter says. If you read the sermon that Peter preaches, not once does he say, God has a plan for your life. Not once does he say, you were born with a purpose. Not once does he say, God can set you free from the stuff that binds you. Not once does he say, Jesus is able to heal your body. Why? Because the gospel is not about you. 
It's not about what you have, what you need, what you can do. It's not even about God's plan for your life. The gospel is about who Jesus is. And the application of the gospel is for your life and for your healing and for your freedom and for your rest, your restoration. But your restoration is not the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. Your restoration is the application of the truth of who Jesus is. All he does is tell them, you took him. You nailed him to a cross. You killed the author of life. But God has raised him from the dead and made him both Lord and Christ. And there's no salvation in any other name. That's the sermon that Peter preaches. It's all about Jesus. And when he finishes, they cry out, men and brethren, what shall we do? Do you hear the urgency in their voice? Revelation, the revelation of Jesus is an awakening to the fact that you've misunderstood who Jesus is, but now you know who he is. It's an awakening to the reality of who Jesus is that produces an urgency to get right with him. Salvation is not the resolve to give Jesus a try and see if it works out. I mean, I've tried Buddha. I've tried Mohammed. I've tried transcendental meditation. You know, I've tried a little of this and a little of that. Might as well try Jesus too. Let's just throw him in that pantheon. No, thank you. Jesus is not interested in that. There's no salvation that comes out of that. Salvation starts with the revelation of who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. And there's really three points to the gospel of who Jesus is. Number one, Jesus is the Son of God. Number two, Jesus is the Messiah. And number three, Jesus is Lord. And when the Holy Spirit releases the revelation of those three truths, the natural result of that revelation is urgency. I got to get right with him now. I got to get right with him now. And they cry out, what shall we do? What what do we do? What do we do? It's urgent. We got to do something now. Notice the crowd did not say, I'm going to go home and pray on this. Thanks for sharing. You've given me a lot to think about. No, they're like, this truth hit them so hard that they realized that this truth demanded an immediate response. Either I must accept him or reject him right now. We see the same thing in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are in Philippi and they're preaching the gospel and they're arrested. They're beaten. They're put in, in a Philippian jail in Roman stocks. Their bodies are wounded, but Roman stocks, when they put you in Roman stocks, they hook your hands, your wrists, and then they hook your legs and you're hanging in the middle. Wow. So they're in the worst possible situation. They can't even care for the lashes on their back. They've been beaten publicly. Yeah. And the scripture says that at midnight, Paul and Silas began to sing praises to the Lord. Hmm. I mean, number one, the audacity to sing praises. I mean, I might have been crying to the Lord. Yeah. About how bad my life is and asking him, what am I cursed and how come you don't love me? And maybe, you know, I thought you I thought you said your plans for me are good, not evil, to prosper me, not not to harm me. 
I don't know if I'd be singing praises to the Lord. They're thanking God for giving them the privilege of suffering shame for the name of Jesus. They live in a completely different world than we do. You know, that's a different kind of Christian faith than, than we're, we're, we're used to. And the scripture says, you know, heaven is his throne, earth is his footstool. I think God had his foot on his footstool. And their singing was so good that God just started tapping his foot. <laughs> I mean, God sends an earthquake. And all of the cell doors are open and all of their stocks fall off. They're free. Yeah. Scripture says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Now watch this. The jailer comes running into the jail and sees that all the doors are open and assumes that all the prisoners have fled. Yeah. So he draws his sword to kill himself. Why does he draw his sword to kill himself? Because according to Roman law, if you're the jailkeeper and your prisoner escapes, it's your life for his life. Even if it's not your fault, it doesn't matter. Your life is on the line. Paul cries out to the, the jailer, the Philippian jailer, and says, don't harm yourself, we're all here. Don't hurt yourself. We're all here, we haven't gone anywhere. We've been set free, but we haven't used our freedom. Because your salvation is more important than our freedom. We've been set free. We've been made free in Christ. Yeah. But we have prioritized your salvation above our freedom. Yeah. Your life is precious to us, so we're not going to utilize our freedom in this yeah. moment. Yeah. Yeah. And the jailer, when he sees that they're, they've been set free, but they didn't utilize it, they didn't run, yeah. he comes and falls on his face before Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be saved? Yeah. This act of love that Paul and Silas exhibit toward this man yeah. who really doesn't deserve it, by the way. He probably presided over their beating. Yeah. He definitely presided over their imprisonment. He didn't deserve it, but they loved him anyway. Yeah. And when he sees this act of sacrificial, unconditional, Non-deserving, benevolent love. Yeah. It reveals to him something about who Jesus is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if they can act, if they can show love toward me after what I did to them, there's something to the God that they serve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In other words, the revelation of who Jesus was exploded in this man's heart simply because, number one, the God that they serve opens prison doors for them. But number two, even when the God that they serve opens prison doors for them, they don't come out of those doors because they love me too much. Yeah. Yeah. And he falls on his face and said, what must I do to be saved? That is just Standing in the face of this act of sheer love was enough to cause the revelation of who Jesus is to explode in this man's yeah. heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Yeah. You and your house. Going back to Acts chapter 2, the, the crowd of thousands of people cry out, men and brethren, what must we do? And Peter responds, repent, every one of you, and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Yeah. 
What must we do? What must you do? Repent. Which doesn't mean to say I'm sorry. To repent does not mean to apologize. It means to change your mind. It means to think differently. You ever had somebody say they're sorry, but you knew they still believed that they were right in what they did to you? (laughs) But the minute I'm sorry that hurt you the way it did, but I was still right to do it and I'll probably do it again. That's not repentance. But then the person who doesn't even say they're sorry, they just do differently. That's repentance. Or if somebody says, I'm never going to do that again. That's repentance. Meaning the way I used to think, I'm not going to think anymore. That's repentance. When when Peter says repent, he means change your mind about who you believe Jesus to be. And then be baptized. Salvation is a revelation that brings about a resurrection. It's a revelation. The revelation of who Jesus is explodes in your heart and mind, which produces an urgency to get right with him. And that urgency to get right with him brings about repentance and faith. What must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means, believe the truth that created the awakening that caused the urgency. You you, you discovered this urgency that was born in your heart because you became aware of who Jesus is. Now simply believe in that Jesus. Because when we become aware of the fact that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, when we become aware of the fact that I need to do something to get my life right with God, when I feel that urgency, there's a hopelessness about it because I can never make up for the sin that I've committed. And Paul says, the beautiful thing is you don't have to make up for this. There's, of course, there's no way. Jesus paid the price to make up for the sin that you committed. You simply have to believe on him. That's John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Yeah. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You got my slides, I see. Praise the Lord. Good, I'll go back to them. Where am I? So they're cut to the heart. It brings about a resurrection. So salvation is a revelation that brings about a resurrection. Resurrection is the enlivening of the spiritual nature that makes it possible to walk in fellowship with God. There's a part of you that before you come to faith in Jesus Christ is dead. Ephesians chapter 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But he made you alive together with Christ and sat you in heavenly places with him. So before you came to Christ, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, which means that you were completely incapable of hearing from or responding to God. But when God brought about this awakening in your heart that brought about the urgency to get right with God, when you believed, Jesus says you were born again. That is, there is a resurrection of your spirit. The spirit nature that you were born with, but has been dormant in you until you came to faith in Jesus Christ. It comes alive. It's not just a change of your theology It's not just a change of your habits. 
It's not just a change of your associations. It's not just a change of your ethics. But there's an actual resurrection that happens on the inside of you. Something is born that was not alive before. You were born again. It's a resurrection. The enlivening of the spiritual nature that makes it possible for you to walk in fellowship with God. That part of you comes alive that now you can hear God. Now you can feel God. Now you can see God. All of a sudden you can be aware of God. And you have to exercise that awareness of the presence of God. You've got to exercise that capacity to hear the voice of God. You've got to exercise that capacity to connect with the presence of God. You've got to exercise that capacity to experience God. Romans chapter 6 verse 4 says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So Paul says, baptism is a doorway, a declaration, and a drama. That resurrected life, that resurrected nature, All of it is embodied in baptism. Baptism is first a doorway that transitions you from one way of life to another. So when you go through baptism, it's like walking through a doorway from one way of life into another way of life. Baptism, the water is not magical. It's simply a public declaration that you have made a decision to walk through that doorway that you have trusted Christ for your salvation and with your life and that he has changed you and brought that nature back to life. But now that you've walked through that doorway, you're going to walk in a different fashion. You're going to walk in newness of life. Baptism is also a declaration of your decision to walk in that newness of life for the rest of your life. Baptism is a public declaration of your faith in Jesus Christ. It's a public confession. That's why baptism is not secret. It's public. We do it out in the open. We want people to see it. We want people to know it. It's a declaration to the world that I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. You say, what if I'm a private person? Well, Jesus died stripped naked on a cross in front of the entire world, suffering the greatest humiliation on your behalf and on my behalf. And it didn't matter what his personality type was. And so when I stand, when I enter into the waters of baptism, I am making a public declaration to the world that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. But lastly, baptism is a drama. Baptism is a public drama in which we participate in the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says we were therefore buried with him in baptism so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father. So also we might walk in newness of life when he says we're buried with him in baptism. It means that when you go down under the water, it symbolizes Christ going down under the earth. That when they took him down from the cross and washed his body and laid him in the tomb, when you are laid under the waters of baptism, it's called a watery grave because it means that you've gone down into the tomb with Christ and participated in his death. 
But when you come up out of the water and know we don't hold you down for three days. <laughs> but when you come up out of the water, you come up in the likeness of his resurrection. It is a public drama that declares that the Christ that I've gone into the water to, re to represent, he came up out of the grave just like I'm coming up out of the water. And when he came up out of the grave, he came up in newness of life. And when I come up out of this water, I come up in resurrection life. Baptism is the way that every believer gets an opportunity to preach the gospel to the world. Wow. Yeah. It's a public drama. It's a resurrection. The Bible talks about regeneration. Yeah. The coming alive of that which is dead. Yeah. Revelation is the opening up of that which is closed. Mm. And resurrection is the coming to life of that which is dead. But lastly, salvation is a renovation. My wife just talked about this, didn't she? Yeah. She stole my thunder a little bit. Because <laughs> we just bought a new home in December. But before we moved in, we had to renovate. And when you renovate a home, you strip it to varying degrees. We stripped out all the floors and put in new floors. We stripped the paint from the walls and put in new paint. We stripped the paint from the cabinets and repainted the cabinets and repainted the baseboards and repainted the ceilings and repainted all of the trim. And sometimes I walk through my house and I don't tell my wife this because it freaks her out. But I think to myself, I want to strip this house to the studs again. Because I've got a vision. A vision of how to renovate it. And once I strip it to the studs, I'm going to expand it one direction and expand it another direction. And I'm going to dig down under the ground and put another layer level down there. I'm going to renovate. You see, when God strips you to the studs, he's renovating your life. What we don't like is that the first step in any renovation is demolition. We don't like demolition because it feels like God is trying to destroy you. Can you imagine being a house? And all of a sudden they start tearing up your walls and tearing up your floors yeah. and tearing out your ceiling, ripping everything up to the baseboards. And you, you think, come on, please don't take my baseboards. That's all I got left. They're not in good condition, but please don't take. No, oh, man, he's tearing out the baseboards. Please don't take that wall. That wall is load bearing. Oh, man, he's taking down that wall. Yeah. That's what it's like when God starts stripping us. Yeah. Do you realize that the more God loves you, the more he strips you? If God loves you a little bit, he strips you a little bit. If God loves you a lot, he strips you a lot. But if God is absolutely crazy about you, if you pull strings in his heart so deep, he strips you all the way down to the studs. He takes away everything. He strips you bare and he brings you to the place where you feel like there's nothing left of your life. And it's at that very place that he starts to enlarge the place of your tent and stretch out the curtains of your dwelling. All of a sudden he puts in new floors and new walls and, and a higher ceiling and a bigger chimney and a bigger fireplace. And he starts to replace your wood with marble and he starts to replace your stones with precious stones. And all of a sudden when he rebuilds, you look back on the street and say thank you for the yeah. renovation yeah. thank you for the renovation yeah. renovation 
Renovation is a crisis event that changes the very shape of every aspect of your life. Salvation is not just a revelation that makes you aware of something you were unaware of. Salvation is not just a resurrection that causes something to live on the inside of you that wasn't alive before. But salvation is also a renovation. It's a crisis event that changes the very shape of every aspect of your life. You look at the members of the early church. After they had that experience, they lived differently. And all throughout the New Testament, you find men and women who have this salvation experience. They live differently. For the early church, in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, the Bible simply gives us a list of values that comprise the way they live differently. And those values were, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, in the fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and prayer. And it said that they were together in one place with one heart and one accord. No one said that anything was his own, but they had all things common. They broke their bread with gladness of heart. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Meaning every day they got to see some folk get a revelation that brought about a resurrection and a renovation. The cool thing is that all three of those categories continue to unfold for the rest of our lives. The the revelation of who Jesus is, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. The resurrection of that new life on the inside of us, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And the renovation, it just keeps going, doesn't it? Yeah. (sighs) I ask the Lord, when you give us our home, Give me a home that I can have vision for for years to come. That's what I asked him. And he did. I could tell you my five-year dream for the house. I could tell you my 10-year dream. And you know what? I can even tell you my 20-year dream. But each time, I'm going to have to strip it again. Yeah. What if God gave you his five-year plan for you? You would understand why he's stripping you of some stuff right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the problem is when God gets done stripping you and he starts building you up, you think, whoo, thank God that's over. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't know that his plan for you is not over. We just put in new floors and repainted all the walls, but guess what happens? When I get enough money for stage two, those floors are coming out. But we just put them in. Out with the old, in with the new. I want to ask you a question before we close. Are you saved? 
Are you saved? Not are you a Christian? Because you can say you're a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I know he died for my sins. I attend church. But have you had a revelation that has brought about a resurrection and a renovation? Have you come to grips with who Jesus is? Or have you simply realized that you need him? There's a difference. There's a difference. Because people all over the world realize that they need him, but they don't recognize who he is. It's one thing to say, I need you. It's another thing to say, you are Lord, you are the Son of God, and you are the Messiah. Because what's underneath that is what do you need him for? Do you simply need him to make your life better in the now? Or do you need him to save your soul? Salvation begins not when you realize you need him to help you get free from your addiction or to make your finances better Uh or to heal your body or to help your family. Salvation begins when you realize that you need him to save your soul, that you're lost, that you're in need of a savior and that all the good works in the world cannot make you right with him. And if you have never felt an urgency to get right with him, maybe you never have. Maybe you just started going to church. Maybe you even just started serving a ministry. Maybe you even just started giving an offering. And all of those things are fine. Don't stop. But go deeper. Make a decision that today is the day of salvation. That I'm recognizing that he is Lord. That he is the Savior. That he is God's Son. That my salvation belongs to him. If you make that decision today, today becomes the day that brings about a revelation that creates a resurrection and a renovation. And lastly, before we close, there's some of you here, you have had that revelation, that resurrection, and that renovation. You just have not had the opportunity to be baptized yet. And the Lord arrested my heart last night. We are going to baptize you next Sunday. I ordered the baptismal last night. It's coming on Wednesday. I'm going to need some help setting it up. I'm going to have to find a water hose or something. We're filling that thing up outside next Sunday. There's a sign-up sheet at the info table. If you have not been baptized, put your name on that list and be here next Sunday at 10 a.m. to get ready to get baptized. Children 13 or over. Adults. 
It's a declaration. It's a doorway. It's a public drama. But what it's all about is understanding that the most important thing in life, not your life, not my life, but life, the most important thing in life is making sure that you're right with Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe that, and if you haven't realized that, you don't know who he is yet. But right now we're going to pray that the Lord would release that revelation that this would be the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray for the revelation of who Jesus is to spread throughout this auditorium and even through the online campus across the world. Let there be an outbreak of the revelation of who Jesus is. Let it spread like a virus. Let it be more contagious than COVID. I pray, Father, that folks would be symptomatic with this virus of the revelation of who Jesus is. I pray that it would be transmitted through the air, through the atmosphere. Let there be a pandemic of the revelation of Jesus. Let it traverse the earth and let more people get sick with this virus than got sick with COVID. Let there be more salvations than there was death. Lord, you said afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Father, I pray that you would begin today with the revelation of who Jesus is, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. For by grace we are saved, not of works, it is through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would release the faith for salvation. Amen. Do it by your spirit. Do it by your power. In Jesus' mighty name. Now with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, nobody looking around.